Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through A Song of Ice and Fire one chapter a week. I am one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Burnaby Fish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to the 101st episode of the Nauticast titled... Kissing Cousins, an analysis of A Clash of Kings, Tyrion 7, in which all of the Lancer dysfunction we talked about back in Tyrion 6 somehow, I know, somehow gets even worse than it was back then. There, this really is a hole with no bottom as far as Lannister dysfunction is concerned. <laughs> and we're very pleased to welcome to the Nauticast a new guest for this episode. Please welcome Jinx Lier. Hi, guys. Um, I'm really, really excited to be here. I am a sex worker, story editor, witch, and a fantasy <laughs> fangirl. And I recently relocated from Philadelphia to Los Angeles um, around the same time that Emmett moved to Philly because that town was just not big enough for the both of us. <laughs> True. I appreciate the move. I, res- I respect the. I respect it. Yeah, I just had to level up. So, like, you can have Philly. That's very and fair. And I'll be here in the California sunshine, smoking way better weed. Let it never be said you would lose a tour forging. So I understand. <laughs> yeah, we're so we're super happy to have you on for this episode. This episode is uh, very uh, relevant to your background and to your interest and before we jump into the episode itself where i mean you're not just here with us in the nauticast you have many appearances in the song of ice and fire fandom outside of simply the nauticast so where are the other places that people can find you i think the most recent thing that i did was i know that nerd with steven stark mm-hmm. um which also stars my wonderful wonderful best friend mallory better known as san brixian <laughs> and she joined us and we are all wearing flower crowns and we we're talking talking about how much fun we had at Con of Thrones. So that was really, really wonderful. Um, I've also appeared in a couple episodes of Podcast Winterfell. And if you go way back to like the Podcast Winterfell call-in show Hmm. from I think like (laughs) season seven, if you want like a really deep cut from before I even read the books. Um, But I also did two panels at Con of Thrones 2019, Clash of Kinks, and then Depictions of Sexual Empowerment. Um, And I was also on Ian Thomas Malone's podcast. In general, I really enjoy talking about uh, representation of sex work in the series representations of sex workers um, and that's kind of what I've become known for in the fandom because this is a series that actually talks about sex work and sex workers constantly and we're a really big part of some super critical plot points and I think that people when I first saw them talking about sex work in the series kind of lacked the language that is more up to date that sex worker advocates and activists use ourselves to talk about our work and our industry Um, and I thought hey look at all these amazing nerds who are willing to really put in the time to understand things Mm -hmm. that are beyond (laughs) their everyday realities and if these adorable weirdos are willing to learn about about all this fake heraldry and cartography <laughs> and family trees, then I have a feeling that they might be down to learn a few things about what it's like to be a sex worker in 
our world. So I really love talking about that. I love expanding people's ideas of what sex work is um, and helping them understand also a lot of the power dynamics that are in place that get shown throughout the series um, and then also the television show is is its own beast <laughs> and representing that into you know it's a really big difference between talking about the books and then something that got beamed into millions of homes sure. um, but what we're here to talk about right now is a very specific rather hateful chapter <laughs> of um, as you will spoiler alert find out I don't like Tyrion very much. Yay. Welcome to the club. I mean, I, I mean, I love Tyrion as a character, but I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of who he is as a character. Um, but yeah, it's 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 lovely to have you on. I think it's going to be a lot of fun doing this chapter and bringing your background expertise is really going to be illuminating. I think because, well, we'll get to that. I, 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 I'll, I'll keep that to the to the end of the episode itself. So yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Jinx. So as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our hand of the king, Wolfman Zach. Grand Maester Tim Bob, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard Mark N, Lord Travis, Master of Ships and Warden of the Waves, Sir Keith J, Master Whispers, Lord Philip the Merciful, Master of Laws, Arch Maester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Warden of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragonscone, Scarlet the Other Red Woman and Mistress of Whispers, Lord Micah, Warden of the West and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James the Jim that was promised, the High Bearded Priest, Lord Jake Assistant to the Hand of the King, Lady Zena Valyrian, Hadrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B., Sir Jasper the Cruel, The King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly were the East Mistress of Old Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden, Lady Stephanie, Lord Amos, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, a Priest of the Drowned God, The King's Cook, Noli Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorsadalica, Prince Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud Soyboy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing, Dance with Dragons, who, by the way, on the day we're recording, he actually has a birthday, so happy birthday, Prince Matthew. Happy birthday, indeed. Sir K.W. Dent, L.C. of the Blackwood Guard and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pinchin for Nostalgia, Queer Alex, Rainbow Commander of the They Dees and Gentle Thems, Lord Quint, Esquire, Master of Absolutely Positively Not Serving as a Spy for Several Unnamed High Lords and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive Small Council, Haldivar, the Waiter for T.W.O.W., A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Veneris of House Colgarian, the First of Redame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, the Queen of Pencils, the Racer in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Portress of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender of Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Sean Bell the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, and thank you very much to our counselor. And thank you very much to our small council patrons. Thank you very much, counselors, as always. And our spoiler warning, as you say in all episodes, we'll potentially be talking about all published books. That is the five novels, three Duncan novellas, histories, interviews, the Windswinner sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones, a TV show. Anything and everything. Our question this week comes from the High Bearded Priest, one of our small council members, who asks, What is your funniest liner moment from the A Song of Ice and Fire series? I have to go with the Dance with Dragons in Tyrion's last chapter where a slave comments that when Drogon arrived, people started running, trying to get out of that pit, but I come to see a show, and by all the gods of geese, I saw one. So what do you think, Jinx? What's the funniest moment in the series? I so I saw this in the document and I spent a lot of t I spent a lot of time thinking about it. There's there is one line that I've I've used before because I've been asked this question before where there's an old woman I think in is it called the lazy eel um mm. who says like I eat lots of shit don't mean I like it. <laughs> um <laughs> I really enjoyed that, but 
I I think honestly my favorite line is from the show and I'm so sorry I know this is like complete like heresy to say but it's because it involves sex workers and it's one of the only times that sex workers appear that like there's a punchline and it's not us mm. um and and it's the when um the pirate uh what's his name oh my goodness Salterson. uh so, yeah, Salvador San is in the the brothel sure, sure. and he's like in the baths and there's two sex workers who say like they ruin his his the punchline of his joke by saying bring me my brown pants. <laughs> and the joke there is really that like sex workers have heard every single fucking joke of under the sun and I really enjoyed that because we got so few moments of like like tenderness between workers <laughs> and like you kind of see that like solidarity where like we're giggling and like the client was like a little pissed off about it <laughs> because he wanted to tell the joke but obviously we've heard it before especially sex workers in a port city would have heard every joke in every language so I like that one a lot but I also I I particularly enjoy um, the one that is that is coming up that I think was your your other example. Yes. So I, I had to pick two. I mean, I'm sorry. I apologize. I'm not. I can't just pick one. There's you always. It's a, it's a rule of two, right? I'm a Sith Lord, right? The rule of two. Anyways, um, it's where Dullers. <laughs> don't look at me like that. It's where Dullers Ed is is talking and they're talking back and forth after the Battle of the Wall. And Dullers Ed says, "I never waited anything." Dullers Ed complained, "The gods always smiled on what though? When the wildlings knocked him off the Bridge of Skulls, somehow he landed in a nice deep pool of water." How lucky was that, missing all these rocks? And then Grin asks, was it a long fall? Did, did the landing of the pool of water save his life? No, said Dollar said. He was dead already from that accident said. Still, pretty lucky missing those rocks, wasn't it? So I just think it's like that kind of like morbid sense of humor is, is something that I, that I love a lot from uh, from Gr- from Grin and from Dollar said especially. And then finally I had to pick another one. And because this is a Tyrion chapter, I figured I'll pick a Tyrion line because Tyrion is very, oh, is seen, in quotation marks, as the funniest character in Song of Ice and Fire. He's not, if, if you go into like deep down inside, like a lot of the humor that Tyrion talks about, as we'll talk about in this chapter, is very much sourced to a lot of sadness and depression and yeah. Anyways, so in at, in Tyrion's last chapter, the same chapter that the High Beard Priest was referencing Tyrion 12, uh, Casperio the Cunning is talking with Tyrion Lannister and he's asking, Casperio is teasing him a little bit, he says, will you want to ride the pig as well? So you remember that Tyrion's riding the pig throughout a dance with dragons along with Penny in order for their shows, but now they're not doing it anymore. And then Terry responds, why? I did not know your wife was in the company. That's kind of you to offer, but I would prefer a horse. So I'm, call me a, you know, a, a guy with a fifth grade sense of humor, but I rather love, you know, your mom jokes. And that's basically the <laughs> a Song of Ice and Fire's version of your mom joke. So what about, what about you? I, I would love to hear what your favorite line or funniest line in Song of Ice and Fire is. Okay, so it's a Storm of Swords, Davos 5. <laughs> And, and Stannis and all his advisors are arguing about Edric's storm and war and prophecy and all very dramatic, important things. And then Stannis kicks them all out, and they all leave one by one except Davos. Davos stays behind, and then Stannis looks up and sees him and then says, Why are you still here? <laughs> and that's just, that's just perfect. Because at one level, that's just like the least civil thing you can just say to another human being. Like, why are you still in this room where I breathe? <laughs> Get out, peasant. I'm trying to brood for the next 18 hours. But it's also just like such a relatable expression of like, please, just everyone leave me alone. I don't want to be with any other human being again ever, which I feel that. So that that just that makes me howl with laughter every time because it's just like such like petulance, like stripped down to its atomic core. It's like the most childish thing you could possibly say to another person. I love it. Oh, it's so, so good. Yeah. 
So, thank you to the High Bearded Priest for the question. If you'd like to ask us a question on the Nauticast podcast, you're welcome to become a Sworn Sword or higher level patron over at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where you can get show notes, early access to every episode, Q&A, and bonus episodes. And speaking of those bonus episodes, our next Patreon-only episode, Every Rose Has Its Thorns, our analysis of House Tyrell is coming this week for all of our poor fellow and above patrons if you're listening on our release date, and can be again found at patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F. I gotta admit, I, mean, I might have overdone a little bit of the Siege of Storms End stuff, but we'll <laughs> see. And, no. and as tradition, I apologize for nothing. But that's not all we want to chat with you guys about today. So before we get to the main episode itself, we decided to do something a bit radical as we approach the upcoming parts of A Clash of Kings. Namely, we're going to rearrange the publisher order of A Clash of Kings for our upcoming episodes. So... Uh, as you understand here in a moment. So here's our upcoming schedule following Tyrion 7. And just as a note, all the dates I'll be talking about are general release dates uh, or our poor fellow patron release dates for our monthly bonus episodes. Okay, so March 2nd, we got Arya 7. March 9th, Sansa 3. March 16th, John 4 and 5. We were combining those two chapters. March 23rd, Brand 5. March 26th, Patreon episode 26, which is going to be a user-picked episode. Watch out for our patrons for our next um, monthly post. March 30th, Catelyn 3, Part 1. April 6th, Catelyn 3, Part 2. April... 13th, Catelyn 4, Part 1. April 20th, Catelyn 4, Part 2. April 27th, Tyrion 8. And our next Patreon episode for April, well, we're not going to spoil which exactly our topic is going to be, but let's just say it's been a long-expected Patreon episode. So yes, we are doing a whole month of stamps. I mean, Catelyn, no, we're not self-parodies. We are. We have to admit we are, right? But I think it's going to be a lot of fun doing a Clash Kings this way, so bolo for that. But enough about our Patreon and our schedule, which we'll remind you about come next week. When we last left Tyrion Lannister, he had poisoned Cersei, prevented word of the apocalypse from spreading in Westeros, and had imprisoned Pycelle for ratting him out to Cersei. Let's find out what happens to Tyrion Lannister in this synopsis of a Clash of Kings, Tyrion 7. Tyrion wonders aloud to Podrick Payne at why Lancel Lannister has arrived so late in the evening. But even though Tyrion judges it to be past midnight, Tyrion will meet with Lancel in his solar. Does Lancel think to find me drowsy and slow of wit at this hour, he wondered? No, Lancel scarce thinks at all. This is Cersei's doing. His sister would be disappointed. Even abed, he works well into the morning reading by the flickering light of a candle, scrutinizing the reports of Varys's whispers and poring over Littlefinger's books of accounts until the columns blurred and his eyes ached. Tyrion splashes water on his face and decides to take a shit, and as he squats, Tyrion figures that the best way to unsettle a teenager like Lancel is to make him wait, so he makes sure he takes an especially long shit. I didn't write this, George wrote this. After he finishes browning the chamber pot, Tyrion gets into a bathrobe and musses up his hair to make it look like he was roused from sleep and heads out to meet with Lancel Lannister. Tyrion finds Lancel pacing in front of the fireplace in his finest Lannister apparel, slash red velvet, black silk, jewel dagger, and a gilded scabbard, dazzling. Tyrion greets Lancel, teasing him that his visits are too few. But really, why are you here, Lancel? Well, Lancel is here to command Tyrion to release Grandmaster Pycelle. He flashes a piece of paper in Tyrion's face, telling him that it is the warrant for Pycelle's release. Tyrion waves it off and pretends that he's concerned about Cersei's health after her recent illness. The reality, though, is that Tyrion is a bit upset that the dosage of poison he gave Cersei only put her out of action for a limited amount of time. But anyways, now that Lance was here, would he like to have a drunk, I mean drink, with his favorite cousin to help him sleep? Nope, not least. He's here because Cersei told her to be here, and he doesn't need help sleeping. Lancel is a very big boy, you see. Knighthood had made the boy bolder, Tyrion reflected, and the sorry part he had played in murdering King Robert. Wine does have its dangers, Tyrion smiled as he poured. As to Grand Maester Pycelle, my sweet sister is so concerned for him, I would have thought she'd come herself. Instead... She sends you. What am I to make of that? 
Well, Tyrion can make fuck all of it, according to Lancel. Just release Grandmaster Pycelle, you fucking annoying asshole. And you'll have to do it because Cersei is Queen Regent. Even if Tyrion is Hand of the King, he serves the king. The Regent rules. Oh, perhaps you should write that down so I'll remember it better. The fire was crackling barely. Yeah, George, we get it. You like writing Tyrion chapters. We get it. But then Tyrion dismisses Patrick Payne and turns back to Lancel. Is there anything else, kid? Yeah, Sir Jocelyn Bywater defied an order from Cersei, and the Queen wants him in jail for treason or else. Tyrion correctly interprets that this to mean that Bywater refused the order to release Pycelle, but he's not intimidated by Lancel. If Lancel wants to threaten Tyrion, he'll have Shaga come in and kill him with an axe, not a wineskin. Lancel goes red at this and declares himself a knight. So I've noted. Tell me, did Cersei have you knighted before or after she took you into her bed? The flicker in Lancel's green eyes was all the admission Tyrion needed. So far, it's told it true. Well, no one can claim my sister does not love her family. What? Nothing more to say? No warnings for me, sir? Lancel demands that Tyrion withdraw these absolutely untrue and false allegations, but Tyrion threatens Lancel with letting Joffrey know what Tyrion knows. Tyrion is sure that Joffrey will have a thing or two to say about Lancel killing Robert to sex Cersei, and Lancel yells that no, no, it wasn't like that, not, not at all. He only gave Robert the strong wine that Cersei gave to him. He was supposed to obey Cersei and everything. That, that, that's what Tywin told him to do. Did he tell you to fuck her too? Look at him. Not so, not quite so tall. His features not so fine, and his hair is sand instead of spun gold. Yet still, even a poor copy of Jamie is sweeter than an empty bed, I suppose. No, I thought not. I, I never meant. I only just. I was bit. I hate every instant of it. Is that what you have me believe, Lancel? A high place at court, knighthood, my sister's legs opening for you every night. Oh yes, that must have been terrible for you. Tyrion pushed himself to his feet. Wait here. His grace wants to hear of this. Lancel then starts begging for mercy from Tyrion, and please, please, please don't tell Joffrey. He'll end it. He'll leave. He'll do anything to avoid getting his ass killed by Joff. Tyrion tries not to laugh, and he doesn't want Lancel to leave either. They can come to an understanding, right? He wants Lancel to stay. He can keep on fucking Cersei and maintaining her trust, and no one will ever, ever know about his misdeeds. All that Lancel has to do for Tyrion is become his spy. You think you could do that for me, you big boy Lancel? Absolutely, Ansel was more than ready to serve. Satisfied, Tyrion pushes a wine cup in Lancel's hand to celebrate their arrangement, and he'll sweeten the deal. He'll give up Pycelle, well, not entirely unharmed. I mean, he lost maybe a hair or two, maybe most of his hair, during the interrogation process from Tyrion VI. As for Sir Jaslyn, well, Lancel will just tell Cersei that Sir Lancel can win Jaslyn over. But there's one last thing. With King Robert dead, it would be most embarrassing should his grieving widow suddenly grow great with child. My lord, I... We... The, the queen is commanding me not to... His ears had turned like glance or crimson. I spill my seat on her belly, my lord. Oh, a lovely belly, I have no doubt. Moisten as often as you wish, Lancel. But see that your dew falls nowhere else. I want no more nephews. Is that clear? Sir Lancel made a stiff bow and took his leave. With Lancel gone, Tyrion pities the kid, thinking Lancel doesn't deserve the shit that he and Cersei are putting him through. Tyrion then wonders whether Cersei Jaime will murder Lancel first. Anyways, Tyrion's done his due diligence about feeling a little bit bad for this upcoming murder of his teenager, and now he wants to leave the Tower of the Hand. He wakes Podrick Payne up and has him summon Bronn to get his horse saddled and ready to move out. Bronn arrives shortly thereafter, asking Tyrion who pissed in his cornflakes. Cersei, of course. You'd think I'd be used to the taste by now, but never mind. My gentle sister seems to have mistaken me for Ned Stark. I hear it was taller. Well, not after Joff took his head. You ought to have dressed more warmly, Bronn. The night is chill. I'll be going somewhere. Are all sellswords as clever as you? Bronn and Tyrion then set out through the dangerous streets of King's Landing and moved down Shadow Black Lane towards down Aegon's High Hill and over to Pig Run Alley. The moon peeks in and out from over the rooftops, and Tyrion encounters an old woman dragging a dead cat she probably is going to eat. 
Tyrion wonders about the former hand of the king and how they were just so fucking dumb and are willing to engage in being hashtag clever. That was the only way to beat Cersei. Play your own game. And if you don't do that, you end up dead, just like Ned and John Aaron, and unlike Tyrion Lannister, who feels so very alive at all of this. Tyrion and Bronn arrive at Shataya's brothel, and Bronn goes on to utilize the services of a dark-eyed Dornish girl, while Shataya has Tyrion wait for Aliaya to be done with another client. Shataya states that she has to go make the turret room ready for Tyrion, but would he like a glass of wine while he waits? Yeah, Tyrion's a functioning alcoholic. Haven't you read The Clash of Kings yet, Shataya? The wine proves to be a poor vintage, and that's because Shataya can't find any good wine these days from the arbor. Then Shataya heads out, and Tyrion admires the view as he leaves, wondering about her beliefs of her profession being a bit of a religious priestess-like situation. Tyrion notices some people looking at him as Shataya remembers how someone attempted to spit on him and ended up hitting Bronn instead. That person no longer had teeth. So nice. Is my lord feeling unloved? Dancy slid onto his lap and nibbled his ear. Oh, I have a cure for that. Smiling, Tyrion shook his head. You are too beautiful words, sweetling, but I've grown fond of Alayaya's remedy. Oh, you've never tried mine, my lord. My lord never chooses him with Alayaya. She's good, but I'm better. Don't you want to see? Tyrion says he might try her next time, but not today. When Dancy points out that Tyrion is in the mood, you know, the one, what's the way of saying it, you know, the fucking mood, Aliyah comes in and says that Tyrion wants to come with her. When Aliyah leads Tyrion away, Tyrion asks why Dancy was so aggro on Tyrion. Aliyah reports that she made a bet that she would get Tyrion to choose her or else she'd lose her black pearls to another sex worker, Marai. Tyrion says that maybe he'll go take Dancy upstairs so she won't lose her pearls, but Aliyah thinks not. And Tyrion knows that to be true. He's monogamous with Shay in a sort of fashion. Interesting. His Facebook relationship status means it's complicated. It's a joke from 2007, guys. Get over it. They head up the stairs of the turret tower, and Tyrion asks what Aliyah does back in the room while he's away. Well, she sleeps. Sometimes she reads a book. She's been learning to read, and then we get a top 10, a song of ice and fire quote, the one we see all the time on Google. Sleep is good, Tyrion said, and books are better. Then Tyrion kisses Aliyah on the cheek and heads down the tunnel. He comes out and finds a piebald gelding hearing nice voices singing above him. It was pleasant to think that Ben still sang, even in the midst of butchery and famine. Remember notes filled his head, and for a moment, for a moment, he could almost hear Taisha as she'd sung to him half a lifetime ago. He reined up to listen. The tune was wrong, the words too faint to hear. A different song, then, and why not? His sweet, innocent Taisha had been a lie start to finish. Only a whore his brother Jamie had hired to make him a man. But now Tyrion feels that he's free of Tysha. She can't haunt him anymore. Mm -hmm. All he needs is Shay. Mm -hmm. Tyrion finds the manse gates closed and locked. He pounds on the door until a bravosi daggerman opens the eye hole and admits him. He and the rest of the people guarding Shay had been hand-selected by Vars on Tyrion's strict orders that they be old, ugly, scarred, and especially impotent. Oh, and if they were pedophiles or practitioners of speciality, all the better? Like, wow, Tyrion. Varys hadn't, find, had, Varys hadn't found the animal lovers, but he had put two large gay Ibanese men to work along with a bunch of ugly mercenaries. And Shay hadn't minded. Or she hadn't seemed to voice complaints. Besides, Tyrion was uglier than all of the mercs put before her. Though maybe she did see his ugliness. Maybe she put the Moon Brothers the Black Ears to guard her. But then they'd only draw attention to Shay, and she'd be easily identifiable as the Hand of the King's concubine. Tyrion asks one of the Ebony's guys if Shay is awake, but she's not. So Tyrion creeps up to the room and finds Shay sleeping in the nude. He stands in the doorway, admiring the sight, wondering how a sex worker can look so clean, sweet, 
and innocent. Nice, Tyrion. Real progressive of you. He gets a heart on and decides he's going to disturb her rest. He climbs up to the bed and goes down on her as she sleeps. She moans. Tyrion mounts, and one thrust comes. Look, guys, I'm just the messenger. Stop looking at me like that over, over the uh, over Google Hangouts. Shay wakes up and tells Tyrion that she was having this awesome dream, but Tyrion says it's not a dream. He doesn't want to pull out of her. In fact, he wishes he could stay inside of her forever and thinks very, very non-villainously. It is real. All of it. The wars. The intrigues. The great bloody game. And me in the center of it. Me. The dwarf. The monster. The one they scorned and laughed at. But now I hold it all. The power. The city. The girl. This is what I was made for. And gods forgive me, but I do love it. And her. And her. And that is A Clash of Kings Tyrion 7. And now that we're done, imagine me beating the Tyrion as a villain drum because boy this chapter is full of cheering both of being both an asshole and a villain <sighs> what do you guys think of this chapter i think this feels like the intermission chapter in Tyrion's story in a clash of kings like brand for last week it's a smaller and more intimate affair than the political barn burners that preceded it focusing on a handful of characters instead of hustle and bustle it's more stage play than blockbuster in context it feels like a necessary breather before the walls Tyrion is currently keeping at bay start to close in around him in Tyrion 8, he's reacting to Renly's death and Stannis' consolidation of forces at Storm's End. In Tyrion 9, the city rises in rebellion against him. In Tyrion 10, he learns Stannis is coming, with fire, blood, and sorcery, and Tyrion is the last defense for a city that hates him. From there, it's a mad rush to the Battle of Blackwater, where he sets thousands of people on fire and almost dies at the hands of one of his <laughs> own men. Tyrion 7 is where George gathers together with the last bits of character work he needs to accomplish before we plunge over the cliff. And what did you think of this chapter, Jinx? I think this is the first short as this chapter is. It says so much about how, like, but not only Tyrion's relationship to sex work and sex workers, but, um, how that is, how that industry is affected by forces outside of itself. And I think that that is super fascinating. And that's such an interesting piece of foreshadowing or, or I guess it, it might not even be foreshadowing. It's foreshadowing toward, foreshadowing mm-hmm. towards the riots, mm-hmm. but it's, it's just kind of a piece of update when they hear about the wine no longer being good of a good vintage. And of course, where would the best wine in the city that was commercially available be going to? Of course, it would be brothels Hmm. and the fact that the brothel has been affected by this is a sign of greater economic forces and the what is happening as a result of the war in terms of or or of things just like generally ratcheting Mm -hmm. up everywhere in all directions um and so it's not not necessarily yet um like the war coming to king's landing but it's already affected uh economic things all the way up to the brothel and that's something that is actually very true in our world if any of your listeners i don't know what the overlap between your listeners and people who have seen hustlers is but um (laughs) that's a that's a movie you should consider checking it out i'm not here to sell it. it's fun yeah it's it's fun it's a it's a movie um but one thing that that film really focuses on is how 2008 shifted the landscape of sex work and that's something that as somebody who got into the industry in 
2010, there were already people talking about it like the golden days were gone hmm. because the financial crash had already like the the housing bubble had burst and the financial crash was already like in full swing. So you can't to this day step foot in a strip club dressing room without hearing a veteran dancer talk about the old days before that time. So it's really interesting to see in the context of such intricate world building and constant updates on the state of the world as if it is affected by um, these increasingly martial forces around the city and within the city that 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 is one thing that happens is that leisure is affected um and i thought that that's very fascinating um but looking more big picture i think we see how sex workers are positioned socially not so much because of how they are shown in the brothel but how Tyrion thinks about them. And he is so surprised by these adjectives that he uses to describe, like clean and sweet and innocent and elegant and dignified. And he's using that language in the context of saying, oh, he had seldom seen such elegance and dignity in a whore. Shay may be only a whore, but I am faithful to her after my fashion. So it's just constantly reducing the people who are doing sex work to only a whore. And when we get further into the discussion, we can talk about how in this society, having people who are only whores is necessary to have somebody who occupies the position of queen and can be protected at all costs. So I think that in Tyrion's thoughts, you see this binary that he has set up between like women and whores and and whore is, is a lot of us joke about like the way of saying that it really comes across in um, the way that Charles Dance uh, plays uh, Tywin Lannister. <laughs> he really says it that way. But it's just such a like there's this sense of men with power who have the actual power to kill us, hating us and referring to us as whores. And that language is violent. And here you see one of the, the effects of that is that he, Tyrion, has so believed this lie that whores are a totally different class of person that he is shocked, despite constantly being around them, that they are elegant and educated, that we might want to do things like sleep or learn how to read. <laughs> <laughs> and he is obsessed with this idea, not so much in this chapter, but later of whether or not Shay actually loves him. And he is so convinced that he loves her, but he's not seeing her because he doesn't actually see sex workers as people. And, and that's very sad. And I think it's a part of, it's a very small aspect of villainy that is true of a lot of men, uh, who are, are like bad, quote unquote, like bad men in both this story and like, fiction at large and the world at large is if you don't have respect for sex workers it's it's likely that you don't have respect for women yeah i think that's powerful stuff jinx i think uh 
the Lannisters and Tyrion, they look at people and they look at them as what they can get out of them, right? What the squeezing gold out of them and squeezing blood out of them. And Tyrion wants love from Shay, but he doesn't offer her anything besides of himself besides gifts and things like that. We'll talk about that a little bit more towards the end of this podcast. Um, for, for me, like as I was thinking about this chapter, I mean, as we've talked about, George loves writing Tyrion chapters. At least he did in Clash and Storm of Swords, writing both of all of Tyrion's arc and before he even finished Clash of Kings. And I think maybe I have kind of a reason why there's so much fun for George to write. I mean, basically, I think George wrote Tyrion's chapters and arc the same way I wrote The Cautious Tale. Sorry, Jinx. <laughs> I know you've heard this before from me, but for all of you out there, back in 2009 when I was young. I started writing the Cautious Tales, a series of unconnected, character-oriented vignettes, funny, real stories that were very loosely based on some of my own experiences in my early to mid-twenties. Then later I started editing these vignettes into a loose narrative. Then as I got older and hopefully a little bit more rounded in the way that I was approaching the subject matter I was writing about, I did a lot of rewriting to focus on themes and maybe introduce some elements about what this character's psychological makeup is and whether it's actually a positive, healthy thing. Spoilers, it's not. And maybe that's a backassers way of writing the cautious, but that's how my story got written anyways, or at least the current draft of it is. If it's any consolation by so I think this is kind of how George did Tyrion's Clash and Storm of Swords stories. Like if we're looking at the two major plot acts of the story, Tyrion manipulates Lancel into becoming a spy, and Tyrion goes to visit Shay, they're unconnected. I mean, kind of unconnected anyways. What I mean is that they're basically vignettes that can be dropped anywhere into the story. They don't they aren't super important to the overall story of Clash Kings. Like, Lancel literally does one act of espionage on behalf of Tyrion, all of A Song of Ice and Fire. But more importantly, like, these scenes, they don't really tie into each other. I mean, Emmett will argue that they do a little bit, and I will agree with him, as I always do. And there's a common theme of sex, but they read to me like spots where George wrote character-heavy mini-stories that illuminate the type of person Tyrion is at the midpoint of A Clash Kings. And I think that's where the real value of Tyrion 7 is. It's showcasing the type of character Tyrion is at this juncture of the story. The chapter is split neatly in half between the Lancel and Shay scenes, and while I agree that the connective tissue is not especially strong, I think there is one thing they have in common in addition to sex. Power. Power over other people. Lancel opens the chapter with what is supposed to be a power move, showing up in the middle of the night, expecting to find Tyrion asleep. This would throw Tyrion off his game during the subsequent conversation, and make him feel vulnerable and threatened by Lancel's presence, or so the theory goes. But it doesn't work. We see right away in this chapter that Lancel's attempts to wield power over Tyrion are going to fail because Tyrion is wide awake. And of course he is. Tyrion's very first POV chapter opened with him reading through the night instead of sleeping. This is in part because Tyrion really doesn't like being vulnerable. His mind is his weapon as far as he's concerned, and so reading makes him feel powerful, like he has a weapon, he's in control of his life. So Lancel's gambit proves weak, a sign he is dealing with a more experienced player and is going to wind up on the wrong side of the power dynamic. Moreover, Tyrion immediately realizes this isn't even Lancel's gambit at all. It's Cersei's. Lancel, as usual, is just carrying out her sloppy plans for her. Right. I mean, we look back at Ned's chapters. We see Cersei and the Lancers using the lack of sleep as a weapon against Ned and against the House and, and against House Stark. And you kind of wonder, like back in, in Ned's tenth chapter, whether it was Cersei who urged Robert to be summoned the moment Ned came out of his post-Jamie confrontation coma. And we also have the Lancers performing their military drills just outside of Ned's window, just prior to Cersei's coup, just w- thus waking Ned up and making him groggy for the throwdown, the th- for the throwdown in the throne room. So, like you were saying, Cersei has used these texts before against Ned and probably John Aaron before Ned. But with Tyrion, she's up against an opponent who knows all about her reindeer Lannister games. And all of this makes Lancel's preening arrogance even more ridiculous. Like, what part of what he's doing here bolsters that self-image? How can he possibly feel tough? He's not even an effective thug. (laughs) 
And Tyrion plays his young cousin further by forcing him to wait, throwing Lancel off his game where he meant to throw Tyrion off his. I love the little touch of Tyrion tousling his hair to make it look like he had been woken from a sound sleep. I just like what Cersei did when Ned found Cersei in Robert's sick room. Cersei Lannister sat on the edge of the bed beside her husband. Her hair was tousled as if from sleep, but there was nothing sleep in her eyes. I mean, Tyrion is just basically, like you were saying, just running the Lancer playbook. And I guess Lancel never got a copy of the playbook? They only hand out the copies to the A-listers, unfortunately, <laughs> in House Lannister. And that shows you how effective Tyrion is as a political thinker. He has an advantage. I was awake. But he doesn't want to tip his hand. He wants Lancel to start the conversation out by thinking he's winning and so over overextend himself and leave himself vulnerable. As you said, Jeff, in your synopsis, the plot stakes of this chapter are pretty low. No one cares about Pycelle. Neither the characters nor the readers. <laughs> Tyrion even makes this explicit, noting that Cersei didn't care enough to come herself, and he releases Pycelle casually once he's gotten what he really wants in this scene, which is power over Lancel. Pycelle is a pawn. What really matters is how people like Pycelle or Lancel allow more powerful people like Tyrion and Cersei to tear each other down. Lancel thinks he's ascended to that level, but what he doesn't realize is that despite the Lannister name, despite the Sir, despite the Queen in his bed, he is still on Pycelle's level. He is still a servant, as Jeff said about him last time we did a Tyrion chapter. He believes the knighthood confers upon him not only respectability, but also immunity. As Tyrion thinks, Lancel represents a very specific intersection between the recklessness of youth, the elitism of class and wealth, and the arrogance of beauty. The particular arrogance that seems like baked into Lannister beauty, like the arrogance is in their <laughs> genes. I mean, I think you're right, and, and Tyrion is right that Lancel is sourcing his status to the intersection of those elements. The Lannister name, like the title and the wealth, the class, it's all conscious attempts to immunize Clay and Lancer from the tribulations of the poor, those affected by the war in the Riverlands. And, you know, coming on the heels of Arya's sixth chapter, it feels a bit galling. That's a term that you used last time you were talking about Tyrion six, Emmett. I mean, it's really galling. I mean, Arya and the rest of the small folk had all of the elements of their individual and communal identity just stripped away by Lancer goons, with Arya thinking the Lancer's taken everything, father, friends, home, hope, courage, want to take a needle while another had broken her wooden stick over his knee. But it's important to emphasize, too, that Tyrion is relying on his title, his famous last name, and most importantly, his father's position and reputation to get his way with Lancel. Having, you know, I just finished Succession Season 2, which is so good. You guys, if you've not watched Succession, go ahead and watch that. And pitch for you guys who love A Song of Ice and Fire. It's basically if House Lannister owns a media conglomerate. So, yeah, watch it. And there's a character in Season 2 that gets browbeat by his father into becoming his loyal dog. And the constant refrain of his is, my father, my, my dad, dad would or wouldn't like that. And it becomes so much that people start to make fun of it and comment on how much he says these things. But it has a point in the story, which is similar to how Tyrion's story is the midpoint clash. Tyrion has some power on his own. He's got bronze, some cell swords, a gaggle of mountain clansmen. All those, I guess he got by and large on his own accord. But that's not really where his power rests. It's in the people for the moment, believing that Tyrion is channeling Tywin Lannister. That being said, though, he doesn't have the fabled beauty of his father and his siblings, and even his cousin possesses this juncture in the story. We see that same wealth and beauty arrogance with Cersei and Jaime, although their youth is fleeing, which is an important factor for both of those characters and their self-conceptions. And the beauty is especially important in this scene because even more than the Sir in front of his name, Lancel clearly believes he is superior to Tyrion due to his stature. And while Tyrion takes advantage of Lancel in part to gain himself a spy on Cersei, he's also doing it just to strike back at that sneering dehumanization. After all, in this same chapter, Tyrion doesn't want anyone tall or handsome guarding Shay. He will think resentfully of tall, <laughs> handsome men around her in a storm of swords. 
But here we see that jealousy and projection at work inside Tyrion's own family, which takes on extra dimensions when you think of Lancel as a substitute Jaime, as Tyrion does here. Jaime is the one able-bodied person from whom Tyrion has never felt the slightest disdain regarding his stature. As such, Tyrion has always felt guilty about feeling jealous of Jaime. Yet that doesn't make the jealousy go away. <laughs> so not only is Cersei projecting Jaime onto Lancel, but Tyrion is projecting Jaime onto Lancel too. Cersei gets a totally subservient version of Jaime who can kill Robert for her, and Tyrion gets a snottier version of Jaime upon whom he can safely take out his resentment and jealousy. Jaime himself has been noticeably absent from A Clash of Kings so far, after being a major villainous presence throughout Book 1. He will only appear once in this book, in Catalan 7. So it's really kind of haunting how Tyrion and Cersei are not only forcing Lancel to play Jaime dress-up in his absence, but are also projecting their issues with Jaime onto him. Tyrion thinks that really all three of them are killing Lancel. Tyrion and Cersei putting their cousin in a position where Cersei or Jaime are guaranteed to kill him. And is Tyrion any less guilty for being the one of the three who wouldn't strike the blow? Mm -mm. And if Lancel is a substitute Jaime, are we seeing here a buried desire among the siblings to kill Jaime? The golden standard making them all feel inadequate? Tyrion can't live up to Jaime's image in terms of stature. Cersei can't live up to Jaime's image in terms of gender. Jaime can't even live up to Jaime's <laughs> image. And he has self-destructive and even suicidal impulses about it. Do they all want Jaime the idea of Jaime the idea of the perfect Lannister dead? I think subconsciously, yeah, absolutely here. And it becomes a little bit more than subconscious when we get to the end of A Storm of Swords, where Tyrion reveals to Jaime what Cersei's been up to. Cersei's a lying whore. She's been fucking Lancel and Osmond, Kettleblack, and probably Moonboy for all I knew. For all I know. And this becomes Jamie's refrain throughout a feast for Crows that stands in for his refrain relationship to Cersei and his family, the same way that's, that Tyrion's constant refrain about, about Tysha is, is, is for him in A Dance with Dragons. But, you know, considering like the way that you were putting it in that excellent light you shut down, I'm wondering whether outing Lanzo is Tyrion's twisted attempt to kill a copy of Jamie, a poor copy. Like, it feels really, really strong that way, the way you're putting it. I think it's really, really strong. And upon closer inspection, Tyrion is going to double down on Lancel's status as not the top tier of Lancers, contrasting his physical appearance to Jamie. Again, he's a poor copy. Look at him, not quite so tall, his features not so fine, his hair is sand instead of spun gold. Yet still, even a poor copy of Jamie is sweeter than an empty bed, I suppose. And side note, in Feast of Crows, Cersei is going to view Arian Waters initially as Rhaegar Targaryen reborn in appearance, until she becomes better acquainted with his appearance, noting that, well, Arian doesn't really resemble Rhaegar at all. Character family parallels, guys, I'm loving it in this chapter and in all of the Lannister POVs. But beyond the skin-deep similarities and dissimilarities between all the Lannisters and King's Landing, they all bleed red from the daggers they backstab with each other with, and that's kind of a metaphor for, for now, I guess. It becomes quite literal as we go, and this is how House Lannister operates, as a blood-soaked funhouse mirror, every generation crushing down on the rest like a pile of gold. No glory, no exit. <laughs> Tyrion takes advantage of how Cersei has already taken advantage of Lancel. Once he helped kill Robert, Lancel immediately made himself vulnerable to any schemer who was aware of that. He's walking around with a blackmail me sign on his back. <laughs> but in his arrogance and his attachment to the queen... Lancel thinks himself immune to the consequences. He quickly learns better. Tyrion teases the subject of Robert's death at first by commenting that wine has its dangers, a clue to as to how he intends to take Lancel apart. He's uh, communicating without saying out loud, hey, Lancel, I know you took part in killing Robert, and that's what I'm going to hold over you. Lancel's sense of immunity from consequences for that is rooted in Cersei's protection. But as he himself says, Pycelle also thought he enjoyed that protection, and now look at him. 
How ironic that Cersei dismissed Ned's paper shield, yet now relies on the technicality that the regent officially outranks the hand. <laughs> Tyrion's power as hand comes not solely from his position, but how he builds on his position. What he does after the title gets him in the door, as it did at the very beginning of his arc in A Clash of Kings. Lancel, by contrast, thinks the Sir in front of his name and the Queen Regent in front of Cersei's automatically gives them power over Tyrion without having to act on it. When Tyrion continues to poke and prod him regardless, Lancel moves to a threat of force, falling back on his knighthood and physical advantage over Tyrion. But Tyrion has Shaga, who is no knight and who doesn't fit the Lannister beauty standard any more than Tyrion, but is strong enough physically to counter Lancel's threat. Plus, as Tyrion notes... Shaga kills with an axe, not a wineskin. <laughs> I love this line because at the moment Tyrion reveals he knows Lancel committed regicide, he's also rubbing it in the young man's face how cowardly and unchivalrous he's been, how much he doesn't live up to this knightly image he's projecting. You killed with a wineskin. Lancel desperately tries to maintain his image one last time, telling Tyrion to take back these words. But then Tyrion drops the bomb. He threatens to tell Joffrey that Lancel killed Robert. <laughs> As I've been arguing in these Tyrion chapters, his tortured relationship to Joffrey gets at the heart of his inability to do justice, as he promised he would as Hand. Even if Tyrion himself was being less villainous in The Clash of Kings, his power would still derive from this cackling little sadist who seems like he's only getting worse with age. And there's really no way around this for Tyrion. If he directly challenges Joffrey, as he does during the riot and when Joffrey orders Sansa publicly beaten, he makes an enemy out of the king. If he distracts Joffrey like he did with the crossbow a couple Tyrion chapters back, he's just kicking the can down the road. The only positive use the Hand can seem to make of his king is as a threat. A boogeyman he dangles in front of Lancel to force him to comply. But that just proves my point. At the end of the day, Tyrion's power over other people derives from a king who takes pleasure only in inflicting pain. Tyrion was never actually going to give Lancel over to Joffrey's tender mercies. But the threat accidentally exposes how corrupted Tyrion's power really is. And the threat is enough to get Lancel to completely collapse. All at once, the image he's trying to maintain falls apart, and he is a kid again, begging for his life. Mm. Same thing happened with Loras at the Melee and Renly's camp. Catelyn saw the shining knight of flowers give way to a bleeding, bewildered boy. All these identities, these titles, they're costumes we wear like armor. When death pierces those costumes with its iron gaze, we're all just scared kids again. Tyrion pauses just for a moment to dwell on this, the trap closing in around his cousin. And yes, this regret is something that Cersei will never experience. She never even gets this far with the whole empathy and thinking of other people as people thing. But it doesn't change Tyrion's actions. Being the kindest viper is nice, I guess, but it doesn't mean all that much to the person stepping in the snake pit. Yeah. And because this is the Tyrion is the supervillain of podcasts, I should note that despite Lancel not being entirely sympathetic, by all accounts, he seems to keep faith with Tyrion and doesn't betray him. But again, as I was saying before, after Jamie reveals the truth about Taisha, Tyrion tosses aside the arrangement he and Lancel made back in this chapter because, yes, the man breaks, as, as Septa Maribold says, but more than that, he does it because he can and because Lancel is the lesser Lannister and it's the only outlet that Tyrion can get blood vengeance on Jamie. For now, of course. Like you were saying about the nicest viper, the nicest viper only ways to strike you and kill you, but you still end up fucking dead at the end of the story. So George offers several motivations for Tyrion to manage the transition between the Lancel and Shay scenes. On the surface, he is thrown off by Cersei moving against him. He looks like someone pissed in his soup, as Bronn says, and he wants the comfort of sex on that basis. But is that true? I mean, he managed Lancel's intrusion quite handily. He doesn't seem shaken. 
Tyrion's thoughts give us a second layer of motivation. He's turned on by his own effective use of power, how much awesomer it makes him than his predecessors. And this is one of the moments you see most clearly how George is comparing and contrasting Ned's arc in Book 1 with Tyrion's arc in Book 2, when he thinks back on how Ned was just an honest fool who didn't know what he was doing and he got eaten alive by Cersei, and that's why Tyrion is still around and Ned's not. Tyrion is not nearly as insightful here as he thinks. Ned and John Aaron left themselves open to Littlefinger, more than Cersei. The latter is a pretty sloppy planner, as Tyrion himself just demonstrated by easily co-opting Lancel. It's weird that he's framing Cersei as a mastermind here, how, <laughs> given how easily he just took her apart. Moreover, both Ned and John Aaron actually did have their own conspiracies in the works, centered around Stannis as the backup heir to replace Cersei's children. Their problem was less being too noble to shit, as Tyrion puts it, and unwilling to play the game, then it was their gambling in the wrong direction, missing the hidden knife at their back wielded by Peter Baelish. So Tyrion is, conveniently, confining his predecessor's mistakes to the aspects of themselves he knows he does not possess. He is ignoring the blind spots that they have in common. The irony is that while Tyrion tells himself he's learned from Ned's mistakes, and he has in some ways, like taking charge of the gold cloaks and getting rid of the red cloaks, overall, though, his arc in this book traces Ned's in the previous book beat for beat. Like, look at what we got left of Tyrion's uh, arc in this book. Tyrion's ninth chapter is about the riot. It's about a throwdown in the streets of King's Landing, just like Ned's ninth chapter versus Jaime. So Tyrion can't hide from the anarchy he glimpses any more than Ned could. Tyrion's twelfth chapter in this book is about a fateful throwdown with Cersei, just like Ned's twelfth chapter was about a fateful throwdown with Cersei. So Tyrion, just like Ned, is not as safe from her as he would like to think. Tyrion's fourteenth chapter in this book is about a betrayal during his last stand, just like Ned's 14th chapter in the throne room with Joffrey. And Tyrion does not see that betrayal coming any more than Ned did. And in both cases, they get a final 15th chapter, an epilogue. They hover on the edge of death and dream feverishly of the decay of all they ever fought for. Yeah, those are awesome points. I think I had never seen that before, that Ned and Tyrion's arcs trace and parallel each other so, so well. And, you know, you talk about the 9th, the 12th, the 14th, the 15th chapter, even in the next chapter, the 8th chapter, I mean... We talk about how Tyrion is a better planner than Cersei, but Tyrion is making the same mistake that Ned Stark did in trusting Littlefinger. I mean, in Tyrion's eighth chapter, Tyrion's going to entrust Littlefinger with negotiating a marriage alliance with the Tyrells, despite his misgivings. And what does Littlefinger do? Well, I mean, he does do the sort of due diligence of negotiating an alliance between a marriage alliance between Marjorie and Joffrey, but he also immediately goes to work to secretly undermine the Lannisters. Again, we'll get all to we'll get to that in Tyrion's eighth chapter. But sort of unlike Ned, and especially unlike John Aaron, Tyrion knows that Littlefinger is a bad player. And I guess I haven't forgotten this, but maybe Tyrion has. Littlefinger framed Tyrion for the attempt on Bran's life back in A Game of Thrones. I mean, Tyrion muses several times in Clash about maybe he should mount Littlefinger's head on a spike, but he frustratingly decides that he Littlefinger's just too essential to kill, an opinion that Littlefinger does not share about Tyrion whatsoever. So pipe down, Tyrion, you ain't hot shit that you think you are in A Clash of Kings. To be fair to Tyrion, he does survive this book, where Ned True. didn't survive his, of course. But when Tyrion wakes up in book three... It's only to learn he wasn't master of his domain after all. If A Clash of Kings is the story of Tyrion's gleeful rise to power, his chapters in A Storm of Swords are about his smoldering collapse into nothing, watching everyone around him alternately undo and take credit for his work, smiling and patting his head the entire time. They all openly turn on him after the Purple Wedding, after which he snaps and murders his father and his lover. As he thinks, he arrived in the capital in splendor with an honor guard, but he flees the city in the night like a rat. So in the end, did he really master the game, unlike the fool Ned Stark? 
Or did Tyrion just dance on the knife's edge a little longer, with a mm. little more cleverness, a little more flair? The difference between the two hands is less the outcome than their attitudes towards power, because Ned's attitude towards power shapes his legacy, as we see not only with his children, but his former vassals come and dance with dragons. By contrast, Tyrion's attitude towards power is one of guilty hunger. He described Littlefinger as a boy reaching for honey despite knowing the bees will sting him earlier in this book, and he could have been looking in a mirror and describing himself. He loves it all, but he knows he shouldn't. <laughs> He delights in taking down Lancel, both because he loves the feeling of his own brain at work and because Lancel is tall and strong and a total dick about it. <laughs> but Tyrion also feels bad about Lancel's fate. And this, I think, is the main reason he rode out to see Shay tonight. This conflict is building inside him and he needs release. He wants a context in which his authority feels right, sweet, welcomed, adored, so he can quiet his conscience. Tyrion seeks sex as a way of silencing everything else, every nagging voice of doubt in his head, every external pressure telling him he's small, stunted, impossible to love. It's his way of trying to get back to the one time he was happy, in a modest cottage with his wife. Their names went together, but only their first names. It's the last name, the name of Lannister that broke them apart, and he wants to just bury all of that in sex with Shay. But the name of Lannister is also what gives him the power he craves, just as much as he craves sex. So there is no way out of this tangled web. All of Tyrion's escape valves are tied right back into his pain. So he carries that pain with him everywhere until it finally explodes. Yeah, amazing points as always. But I mean, for now, like, you know, Tyrion is papering over that pain with feeling powerful. I mean, I read in the synopsis where he was thinking it's real, all of it. He thought of it. He thought the wars, the intrigues, the great bloody game and me at the center of it. Me, the dwarf, the monster, the one they scorned and laughed at. But now I hold it all. The power, the city, the girl. This is what I was made for. And gods forgive me, but I do love it. I mean, I always go back to Tyrion telling Jon back in the early parts of Game of Thrones to wear insults like armor. And also like the point that you bring up about really well about Tyrion is that he never takes his own advice to heart. I mean, when Tyrion talks about being the dwarf, the monster, the one they scorned and laughed at, he's saying he doesn't have to armor themselves with those identities. He supersedes such things. He's the hand of the, he's the, hand of the king. A Lannister, goddammit. I mean, he's embracing Varys' conception of power as a shadow on the wall, so he'll take on the mirage for his identity, despite knowing the public persona building against him. I mean, Tyrion is consciously aware of this, but it strikes me how Tyrion is framing these shadows. Power, war, intrigue, games. Power for what? Just or unjust war? Intrigue, what is it for? And a bloody game to top it all off. I mean, like, we talked about Renly back in Catelyn's second chapter, and it seems to me that the substance for Tyrion is similarly not there beyond propping up a fucking monster of a king backed by assholes for a family. I mean, loving this game for how awesome it makes Tyrion feel is a far fucking cry from the start of Tyrion's, the start of Tyrion's arc in A Clash of Kings, as you were talking about. So what will you do, my lord, now that you're the hand of the king? She asked him as he cupped the war that warm, sweet flesh. Something Cersei will never expect, Tyrion murmured softly against her slender neck. I'll do... Justice. I mean, justice is kind of a fine word, right? It stirs people's conscience. It feels resolute and an ideal worth aiming at, in theory. In practice, it's hard. Justice is really hard, as Ned Stark discovered in his Hand of the King tenure. And instead, the temptation is to embrace the game, the power, that sexual component of it which Emmett you captured so well. It entices Tyrion, and he falls to it. And similar to how George and Dance writes war as having a stronger appeal for Daenerys Targaryen the peace, even really showing how much more sexually appealing war is over peace to Danny. so too George does it with Tyrion, Clash, symbolizing the allure of power for Tyrion in, in post-coitus with Shay. But like all the temptations that pull our heroes slash protagonists, protagonists in the case of Tyrion, the good times are only temporary. 
And the culmination for Tyrion is that all the things that he loves about the game are violently ripped away from him at the end of it. Tywin's going to take Tyrion's position away from him at the end of A Clash of Kings. Sir Jason Bywater will reveal this truth about the city's regard for Tyrion after the riot, and the nobility of the city will demand his blood, and several nobles will actually perjure themselves to achieve getting Tyrion's blood. And then finally, Shay will quote-unquote betray Tyrion for Tywin and the promise of gold and jewels from Cersei. And then nothing of the shadows or armor remains for Tyrion. And Tyrion in dance, as we, as Emily wrote, written about so lovely in, in your essays in the, a couple years ago, he embraces that sense of nihilism which sends, which sends him spiraling into depression, alcoholism, murder, rape, and suicidal ideation too. George has talked about how at the start of the Winds of Winter, Tyrion is finally thinking that maybe he wants to live after all. It's not the case in, in A Dance with Dragons when he's had all of those mirages just kind of taken from him. All those masks, those costumes you were talking about, they've all been taken from him and he doesn't have that zest for life anymore. And he becomes a much more darker nihilistic character come A Dance with Dragons. Very well said, sir. So I think that about wraps us up for the depth of A Clash of Kings Tyrion 7, moving on into foreshadowing and groundwork. Tyrion promises Lancel here that if he holds faith with him, he'll reward Lancel with a lordship. And though Lancel won't receive his lordship because of what he does for Tyrion, he ends up becoming a lord in the Storm of Swords when Lancel is rewarded with the Derry Lordship, though he later gives that up to join the Warrior's Sons after Cersei allows the Faith to rearm as the Faith Militant. Kind of similar to how Littlefinger doesn't directly get Harrenhal from Tyrion as Tyrion promised, but he kind of ends up Lord of Harrenhal anyway by later machinations in the Clash of Kings. It's kind of that like ironic fate in that Tyrion has these things that he's promising people, and then they end up getting it anyways because I guess that's that's uh, that's interesting. It's, it's good for it in a story sense. And along the same lines about the uh, about the Cersei allowing the Faith to rearm as the Faith Militant, Tyrion is going to muse about who's going to kill Lancel, thinking the only question be whether Jaime cut Lancel down in a jealous rage or Cersei murdered him first to keep Jaime from finding out Tyrion Silver was on Cersei. So, as we know, coming up in the Winds of Winter, we've got the trial by battle for Cersei Lannister, and we're all we all kind of know who Cersei's champion is going to be. It's going to be Sir Robert Strong. We don't know who the Faith's champion is going to be, but the one theory, the one I favor actually, for Cersei's champion, for rather for the Faith's champion, is that it's going to be none other than Sir Lancel Lannister. And though George probably didn't have Cersei's trial and battle, trial by battle in mind back when he was writing Clash, I think he always knew that Cersei would kill Lancel, albeit through Robert Strong acting as Cersei's vessel and champion in her upcoming trial by battle. There is a strong connection of, of violence and power between Cersei and Lancel. We're going to see that again with the Blackwater. So I can believe, I can buy that even if George didn't have the specifics worked out, he always knew that's how Lancel was going to leave the stage, so to speak. So we also have another edition of Riot Watch here as we build up the King's Landing Riot, one of the big central events of A Clash of Kings. Tyrion in this chapter watches an old woman dragging a dead cat away to eat. Yeah, it's gotten bad. They're getting to Stannis levels of starvation in King's Landing here. And, of course, there's no good wine coming in from the arbor because of Renly, as we said, is starving out King's Landing. So there's just two Tyrion chapters to go before it all goes apeshit on the streets of King's Landing. It's probably safe to assume that the people who own the brothels have, like, the best liquor hookups in King's Landing. So if it's going dry there, you know it's only downhill. That's a bad sign. That's true. It's a bad signifier. Right. And I mean, it's, it's noted in an earlier Tyrion chapter that most of the food and wine was earmarked for Castle and Garrison. But you mm-hmm. have to imagine that some of it should have gone to the brothels since, you know, bread and circuses are one of the ways that the Romans kept the starving population from going apeshit on them back in, in ancient Rome. It's not being the case. And people are getting a little bit frustrated being in King's Landing and not having the good food and wine anymore. They should check in with the people who run Volantis. They seem to understand <laughs> that logic just fine. <laughs> they, they should check in with Volantis. Oh, man. 
So finally, piece of so our final piece of foreshadowing is later in Clash, Shay is going to tease and seduce Tyrion in an attempt to prevent her from being restationed to the Red Keep kitchens as a kitchen wench. And Tyrion will get annoyed with Shay, thinking back to Dancy teasing him when he goes shows up at Shatai's brothel in this chapter. The way Shay was acting reminded him of Dancy, who had tried so hard to win her wager. So I, I think when we're talking about Tyrion and his relationship to sex workers in A Song of Ice and Fire, and in this chapter particularly. We get a sense in a later Tyrion chapter that as much as Tyrion seems like this progressive guy with kind of these attitudes that defy some of the more traditional misogynistic attitudes of Westeros, it's not actually really the case. And I think that's a good way to transition us into the theory and discussion section of this podcast in which, you know, I have to ask the question, I mean, what do we actually make of the relationship between Tyrion and sex workers slash Shay and also the depiction of sex work and A Song of Ice and Fire in general? Yeah, so, I mean, I could probably create an entire podcast about the relationship between uh, George and the sex workers that he writes. Um, and in fact, I will shamelessly plug the Con of Thrones event that I'm going to have this year, um, which is going to be called Where Horrors Go, Sex Workers in Westeros and Beyond, because we're going to talk about how in George's world, sex workers are never the POV characters and we're only sometimes named, but are central to critical storylines like Baelish's rise, Tywin's fall, and of course, what we're talking about right now, Tyrion's dark turn to villainy. So geography, ethnicity, class structures, all of those things are shaping these sex workers' experiences of life and often of death. And so I am really excited to to be here and start that conversation, but I do want to name that it's a really big one. So obviously, you have to come to Con of Thrones, everyone. <laughs> And listening so we can have this whole conversation but what we're seeing here is really giving us a lot of insight into how thoroughly Tyrion has really absorbed all of the things that Tywin has told him about sex workers his whole life he thinks that he feels so differently about this and that he is in love with Shay. Um, he later has this upset. I mean, throughout the story, he has an obsession with Taisha and will later come back to that in a constant refrain of this idea of where whores actually end up after, you know, you participate in their gang rape, um, which is what happened to Taisha, what he contributed to. And, it is so clear in how he reflects on the positive qualities of these women that he doesn't associate anything positive with sex work in general. Not all sex workers are women, but oftentimes the ways that people talk about sex workers reflects on their beliefs about women in general. And I'm going to get like very theory heavy in this for a second and talk a little bit about um, some quotes from Playing the Whore, which is a Melissa Jira Grant book. Um, it's very approachable. Please, if you've never read any theory on sex work, it's like 130 pages. It's so, so easy to understand. Um, and I, I highly recommend it. But one thing that I want to highlight from this right now is two quotes. 
We permit some violence against women to be committed in order to protect the social and sexual value of other women. And the word whore is used to brand any woman who steps out of current boundaries of respectability. So talking about how sex worker and specifically the derogatory term whore is a class of person that Tyrion clearly believes has bought this entire societal lie that sex workers are a different kind of people who do not deserve love, who do not deserve to live free of violence, and certainly shouldn't be at court. And Tywin was extremely specific when he said, do not bring the whore to court. And Tyrion has endangered her Despite that, knowing exactly what the situation is, because he isn't truly considering what he is doing to her because he doesn't truly see her as a person. She is a vessel for his affection that he wants to see mirrored back at him. He needs validation. Like Emmett was saying, that is what he is seeking in this interaction. He needs to believe that he is worthy of power, that he can exercise power over this person. And in the context of this and many other societies, there is nobody more powerless than a sex worker. And of course, that is deeply affected by other social identities. So what your ethnicity is, what your class is, all affects your experience of sex work. And that is something that we see in the story as well. And it is constantly referenced, like, of course, all of these sex workers are being described via their bodies. So we actually have very clear ideas of who is darker skinned than who else. And one of the things that ends up happening as a result of Shay being protected under the guise of not being a sex worker is that a sex worker who wasn't even Tyrion's paramour ends up being punished and flayed in the streets. That is what ends up happening to Aliyaya, who is the daughter of the most powerful brothel owner in King's Landing. So the power is very conditional, and it is always that at the expense of sex workers that women who are of a higher class are being protected And yet, at any point, if those women, even of a higher class, even the queen, are behaving in a way that is out of line, then they can be whores too. And then it is okay to treat them however you want. So I think that really comes across in this when we're talking about how Tyrion is so surprised by these positive qualities that these sex workers have. And then later, what is his inner monologue saying, even when it's not about sex workers, he's calling Cersei a lying whore. Um, Jamie calls Cersei a lying whore in that refrain that he gets. It's like these Lannisters have these obsessive thoughts about sex workers throughout the entire series. It's either about sex workers or comparing Cersei to a sex worker, Jamie calling her lying whore and saying, well, she's probably fucking moon boy for all I know. There is this idea that there's good women 
and then there's whores and you can't really do anything wrong to a whore. You don't have to consider her needs. You don't have to consider what it really means to protect her. I mean, let's take a fucking second to talk about the men who Tyrion is supposedly protecting Shay with. <laughs> They're terrifying. <laughs> They're, they're truly scary. And it really, you know, what does, what is communicated through that? Like, what is being protected? I'm like, this isn't rhetorical. Rhetorical. I mean, I guess maybe no, this is rhetorical to fucking it's, edit it's that out. Tyrion, but, Tyrion's uh, access to Shay. That's what's being protected. Not Shay. Tyrion's unique access to Shay is what he's, he's, he's really caring about guarding here. And you're making such great points about how wife is this supposedly protected status in Westerosi society, but it's like a suspended sentence. You know what I mean? Like they can plunge you back into jail at any moment at, at will. We see that constantly in Cersei's story, of course, and we see with a lot, a lot of other female characters in the story, and it's something that is just it's just so casually erased by by treating them like they're in a in a separate category. Like the uh, the climax of uh, the movie Eyes Wide Shut, where Tom Cruise has been spending half like half the movie wandering around trying to find out what has happened to this woman Mandy who saved his life, the sex worker who saved his life. And when he finally asks the villain, "Is is this is this her? This body I found in the morgue is that her?" And he says, "Yeah." And she was a hooker. I'm sorry, but that's what she was. <laughs> that's how he puts it. That's what she was, not who. That's what she was, and that's just how he just casually brushes it all aside and throws it under the rug. And you see that with the Lannisters, but with, with Tyrion with the specific extra spike that he's convinced himself that this is love, which is really what gives it a whole other layer that I don't think Tywin and Cersei and Jaime are ever really messing with, that, that Tyrion has merged like this violent, like, you know, insisting, like, binary control thing with what's left of his romanticism. And I think that might make him even more dangerous than the rest of his family. Right, and you also like it, it, you're both alluding to this this theme that we see sometimes in, in literature, which is the the concept of the, the the Madonna and the whore, right? That women can only be two mm-hmm. types of characters for a certain type of man. They can only be the sainted motherly wife figure or the whore. There's no in between sides here. And I think something you're pointing out, Jinx and Emmett, I think is really smart is about how Tyrion is like looking at like Shane's like, wow, she looks so innocent and pure, and like this is like really like fucking with his head because he thinks that you know women can only be like Joanna Lannister his mom who he never knew of course because she had died giving birth to him or like a whore like Tysha who he thinks is is this you know sex worker that Jamie hired on his behalf and I think that's ultimately what ends up sending Tyrion into this horrible nihilistic spiral come a storm of swords and that image is broken for him that Taisha actually did love him that Taisha was the one who was able to bridge the gap between those two archetypal roles for women in the story I I think that it's important to talk about the fact that like sex workers being on the bottom of this social pyramid like what's at the top obviously is the the iron throne but the bottom of this social pyramid very bottom of this social pyramid is sex workers and and actually the entire feudal structure just as it demands serfs 
demands sex mm-hmm. workers. So Emma and I are going to get kind of lefty here for a second. <laughs> Poor Jeff. And I'm going to explain <laughs> uh, that that when you have this concept of the divine right of kings, it is simplifying power by declaring that certain people are born important and worthy of rule. And in order for that to be true, there must also be people who are born insignificant, who are in very Variably, by design, harmed in order to protect those above them in the social hierarchy. And the kind of irony about this is that a lot of people understand this in the context of like material resources. So we see in the story when certain material resources run dry in times of economic and social crisis that People are starving, but the Lannisters are still eating well. And so we, we understand this kind of like zero sum game in the concept of material resources that the serfs who are harvesting the grain are not the ones who are enjoying the bounty and that other people have those resources at the expense of those at the bottom. That doesn't actually have to be true about the way that we treat people. But we act like it does. We act like there is only a certain amount of respect to go around. And that in order to have an, a society that isn't sheer chaos, well, clearly we have to abuse some of the people. So which of the people are we going to abuse? And in this and, like I said, many other societies, spoiler alert, ours included, we have chosen sex workers and particularly certain kinds of especially vulnerable sex workers to be those scapegoats. So we see that here in the story where you end up with uh, Aliyaya, who is a black woman, ends up getting fucking punished in the streets for shit that she didn't even do to protect a lighter skinned sex worker who Tyrion was actually seeing who was held up at a house who was protected under the guise of not being a sex worker. So just like in the world that that we all are speaking from right now, you can tell I hesitate to call it the quote unquote real world, but the one where I'm like sitting here with my microphone right now, just like my experience of sex work is affected by the fact that I have many privileges. I am a white woman. I am a cisgender woman, i.e. I am not transgender because transgender sex workers and particularly black transgender sex workers and those who are working outside are under incredible amounts of violence from both the state and from clients as well. And that is something the economic conditions that one approaches sex work from is something that does show up in the books as well. And you have people who have certain amounts of relative power like Chitaya. But in the end, it is all undone by the fact that you are a whore and any woman in that society can be a whore at any time for not acting right. But God forbid you have actually done sex work, then literally you if you die, you deserved it. Just like you said from that scene, Eyes Wide Shut, of like, she was a hooker. That's what she was. Pick up any fucking copy 
of any paper that would run a headline about a dead sex worker and you're going to see like prostitute found dead or some other euphemism from for that that represents all of who we are as human beings as reduced to this one criminalized act that we do that we did to survive so it's really, really brutal for me to read this and to know what's coming for Shay because she's in such an insecure position already. She's like we said, she's not fucking like Tyrion's access to her is being protected. She could get raped by any of these guys that any point like that does not he was like oh I don't want handsome men around her so that she doesn't seduce them so I she guess. doesn't cat the crush but like, it's, it's such a like a squirming infantile way of thinking about it and he can't really deal with it on a conscious level because he's kind of ashamed at, at, at how base this is but you're right it's just this intersection of, of, of gender and economic power in a way of, of, of dividing people because you have people on top of the society who are doing quite well and not by the sweat of their own labor and so that has to pay off somewhere and it pays off down the ladder and you know sex workers are such a convenient scapegoat as a way to like you know getting as much out of them as possible they're so unprotected that they can be exploited and so you have that mirror image of the people on top who have immense power uh, but no labor, and then you have the people on the bottom who work immensely but have no power. Yeah, absolutely agree. So it's also really interesting that his his idea of their relationship, you know, you kind of described it as Facebook status, it's, it's complicated. Um, it, but he says, Shay may be only a whore, but I am faithful to her after my fashion. And that to me as somebody who is actually doing full service sex work and has been for years um, as a full human being who believe it or not like has sexual and romantic relationships with people I think that line stung particularly because of this very pervasive idea that there's no such thing as a monogamous sex worker and I am not monogamous but it's not because I'm a sex worker. <laughs> it's because I choose to not be monogamous. And I know sex workers who are married, who are monogamous with their partners, who are doing full sex work, full service sex work. But in the context of their relationship, they have agreed that that is monogamy. And it's so, it's such a small thing in a story where whores are getting murdered left, right, and center. <laughs> but still. <laughs> but, but it is, it does feel worth pointing out because he's so obsessed with this idea of whether or not she loves him. And it's, it's not unrealistic. I've, I've had patrons who are like, they stopped seeing me because they couldn't deal with the fact that I wouldn't hang out with them for free because they didn't believe that if I actually cared about them that I would still need money to exist. Well, when you so, put it that way, it sounds Tyrion, ridiculous, Jakes. <laughs> well, 
that's the thing about being a sex worker, about having that be my livelihood, is that's the best possible result is if I get along wonderfully with all of my patrons and I, they are people who I enjoy hanging out with. That doesn't mean that you have to stop paying me or that you can stop paying me. And it doesn't make my affection any right. less real. And, and the constant, this idea that, that sex workers are always hiding something. Yeah, you see that with Tyrion too. There's Shay's always lying. It's always a mask. It's always something. And it's like, he's not, it's, it's not that like catching feelings makes Tyrion bad. Because like you say, that's like, that's something that happens to a lot of people to varying degrees. It's that it's causing him to completely ignore the economic relationship. And the precariousness that you were talking about of Shay's position. Tyrion just likes to conveniently pretend that that's not what's happening. And that, I think that definitely feeds to how blindsided he is later by what happens with Shay, that he, he's no longer perceiving Shay as a person who's trying to survive. He's perceiving Shay as the person I'm in love with, and everything has to be filtered through that. And now she has a responsibility because I fell in love. That's the other thing with Tyrion. Like, Shay, this somehow confers responsibility on Shay. And then he, that, that, you know, he follows that down the rabbit hole. I think it's fascinating too when you when you're looking at Tyrion's relationship with Shay and contrasting it and comparing it to Tyrion's relationship with Bronn. You have that line from season two of hmm. Game of Thrones where right before they're about to go and battle in the Blackwater, Tyrion's like they're like joking back and forth, and Tyrion's like, "I you're my friend because I pay you," and Bronn's like, "Yeah, that enhances our friendship." And Tyrion's like, "Oh, yeah, I guess it kind of does." But Tyrion cannot have that same relationship with Shay because of all of that in inherited misogyny that he's gotten from his father and from his own relationship and his backstory with Taisha and that he can't view women in the same way that he can view Bronn and you know at the end of things you know Tyrion doesn't really kind of care that Bronn is kind of shrugs him off when instead of like challenging Oberyn for the duel Bronn doesn't take his side does not become his champion by battle and at the end of a storm of swords Bronn kind of gets a knighthood and a lordship and Tyrion at, even at, by the end of a dance of dragons he's still thinking Bronn of Bronn quite positively thinking that yeah oh, he's he's dealt with people like Brown Ben Blum before people like Bronn my old friend Bronn but throughout dance Tyrion is going to have this constant violent hateful feelings about Shay that are not replicated in anyone else. And I think that's speaking strongly to the type of the type of character that Tyrion is, specifically his misogyny, specifically because he is so desires to be loved and he cannot imagine a scenario where someone where love can is can intermingle with the with the idea of being paid. Unless it's Brown, of course, of course he loves. But you know, women, of course, it's only women that he has to be has to have this kind of clear distinction between being paid and not being paid. That's such a good contrast and and it really shows that and and he's so about money in general he absolutely understands like greasing up pockets and how that affects relationships and like it's just so indicative of like the like hatred of sex workers is Mm. poison and it it poisons all of society and you know this is I could go (laughs) on my like galaxy brain lecture about this but when you hate sex workers you are hating people who 
are owning their sexual liberation or lack of liberation, people who are owning their sexual circumstances and recognizing that they have something of value that is desired. And Tyrion cannot handle the idea that somebody might actually desire him, but he so desperately needs to be desired that he has projected all of this hate that he has for himself onto Shay. And it doesn't even occur to him the things that she might actually care about. And, and I think that's, that's also very realistic because I get, I get a lot of fucking emails that are like intro email that are a description of people's bodies that is like, hello, 38, white, fit. I'm very fit. I don't know if I mentioned, but I'm fit and I'm fit and I'm handsome. And it's like, so this is a Wendy's. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, I don't, I don't, I love so many different body types. That's not in any way related. So like, let's talk about on a personal level. I find lots of different body types hot on a professional level. I'm here to make you feel desired and experience pleasure that you don't know already, regardless of what your body looks like. So I don't care. But I think that that's so funny because like that exact mentality shows up Mm -hmm. in this chapter at obvious disregard to Shay's physical safety. So when he's describing what these horrific gang of actual like murderers and rapists that he's surrounded her by, um, he says, when Varys had paraded them before him, Tyrion had been afraid he'd gone too far, but Shay had never uttered a word of complaint. And why would she? Shay has never complained of me, and I'm more hideous than all her guards together. Perhaps she does not even see ugliness. Like, dude, you're worried about the wrong shit. Like, your girl's gonna get murdered by these murderers. Why do you care? <laughs> I think that it's it's just a deep he uses sex workers to play into these like deep yep. neuroses that he already has because he knows that he is at the top of the fucking chain when it comes to people who like that that's what he truly doesn't understand is like Tyrion needs to understand intersectionality. <laughs> He has no concept of his privilege versus the ways in which he is truly marginalized. <laughs> That's what I'm going to say. Is he just like really needs a better understanding of Kimberly Crenshaw's theory of intersectionality? <laughs> well said. <laughs> I agree, and I think that about wraps us up for this episode on A Clash of Kings Tyrion 7, and thanks everyone for listening, and thank you so much for Jinx for joining us. Like, yeah, it's really illuminating for me, all the things you were talking about that for a world that I'm not I'm not familiar with. Um, where can we find you on like social media and everything like that? Well, thanks so much for having me, and it was wonderful to work with you again, Jeff, in a much more fun <laughs> capacity. For those who don't know, I edited The Cautioner's Tale, and that's why I had to stop listening to Jeff's Terrible. voice in my head at all hours of the day for just a little while, but I'm, I'm so glad to be back. Um, you can find me on Twitter and uh, when I'm not being banned on Instagram at Jinxlier, J-I-N-X-L-I-E-R-R-E. You can also find me at jinxlier.com, which is currently under construction, and uh, jinx at jinxlier.com to email me if you have some some thoughts about this episode that you're just dying to share <laughs> absolutely i mean it's, it was a real pleasure having you on it's a real pleasure hearing your voice again and you know i 
don't mean to like just talk you up all the time, but you did a really great job helping me edit and rewrite some of the aspects of the caution shot. I really, really appreciate it. We appreciate you so, so much. Thank you so much. Can you explain real quick to the the kids at home what a story editor does instead of perhaps <laughs> you might be thinking of a copy editor. Most people think that I'm a copy editor. So a story development editor is someone that you present them with a manuscript of the book that you're working on or the short story you're working on or whatever it is you're working on and you ask them for their opinion of the story how it can be better what works what doesn't work it's less about like finding the grammatical and spelling errors and more about finding the holes in the plot and character development of the story itself and that's exactly what Jinx did for me and did for the Cautious Tale in pointing out the holes and the places where characters felt one-dimensional or two-dimensional or places where the plot just kind of like didn't fell a little bit flat so that's that's what a story development editor does as, as far as i know i'm, I'm not a professional <laughs> writer by any stretch of the imagination <laughs> no nailed it i love it <laughs> that is exactly that is exactly what it is um and i am uh welcoming more fantasy uh, into my story development editing world i would love to do more fantasy and sci-fi i would love to help you develop a game that has sex workers in it if you're into role-playing stuff um or tabletop games i've had a couple people approach me for that so really especially if you would like it to involve sex workers but for any project i would love to chime in and feel free to drop me a line to inquire about my services or other services which (laughs) i also offer wink wink nod nod no to more say no say no more know what i mean (laughs) absolutely so again, thank you so much for Jinx for joining us. If you guys have the chance, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere you find our podcast. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or follow us on Twitter at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F or shoot us an email at notacast A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. You can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsspiceandfire.wordpress.com. We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon, Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Nerbold, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys, and Lady of Jameson, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Harrenhal, Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood, Sir Tim the Knight, who is guided by voices, Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill, Sir Way, of course, Matt, Warden of the Sanguine Shore, Lord Mar Connington, heir to Griffin's Roost, Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens, Wisdom Benjicut, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and De Morgan, and our two newest High Ladies, Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping, and Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies, and welcome to Tibbs and Lady Raj. Yeah, thank you all very much, and welcome to our two great High Ladies. It's awesome to have you aboard with us on our Patreon site. So, join us next week for A Clash of Kings Aria 7 as Jack and Agar offers Aria 3 murders. Wishes. Both at the same time. This is where Aria's storyline on A Clash of Kings really ramps up in terms of density and quality. I love these Heron Hall chapters, so I'll have a ton to say about A Clash of Kings Aria 7. Oh, man, it's going to be so much fun. So, thanks so much for listening. Thank you again to, for Jinx for joining us, and we will see you guys next time.